Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of currently streaming horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews may include mild spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. Today's review is of the 2018 phantasmagoric revenge horror film Mandy, which is currently streaming on Shudder. Directed and co-written by Panos Cosmatos, Mandy follows Red Miller and Mandy Blood as their peaceful woodland haven is uprooted by a sadistic cult, sending Red on a blood-soaked revenge rampage. And to help me navigate the fever dream nightmare that is Mandy is my Twitter pal Sean. Sean, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for uh, having me on. No problem. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me about Mandy. Uh, but before we get into what I think is one of our favorite films of the decade, uh, I wanted to do a fun icebreaker that I do with first-time guests. Uh, what the first horror film that you remember having a profound effect on you, for uh, better or worse? Okay, so I know you told you 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 gave me this uh, before we talked, and I could think of three things. The first one being A Nightmare on Elm Street Part Three, The Dream Warriors. That was probably. Oh, am I allowed to cuss on this or anything? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. Swears, and, <laughs> swears and spoilers are allowed on okay. Daily Horror Habit. So um, I think that was the first Nightmare on Elm Street movie I saw. And I think um, even now it's still the one that fucks me up the most because, um, you know, a lot of people know it as like the one where he starts being like a little bit funny, like welcome to primetime bitch and all that. But uh the freakiest thing in any Nightmare on Elm Street movie, in my opinion, is still when the kid gets walked off the building like a marionette. Oh, yeah. I don't, and I remember seeing that as a little kid and it just like freaking the fuck out of me. <laughs> I remember seeing that on one of those, like, you know how they used to have that before the internet? They had those highlight shows that would show like clips from the most famous horror movies and then yeah. they played on like Sci Fi Channel and stuff. I remember seeing that clip and that was my first introduction to Nightmare on Elm Street and that kind of just like terrified me because there's there's something about that scene that's a lot different than I think a lot of the other Nightmare on Elm Street kills just because of like the implication that it's one of the few kills that people think that it's just a suicide, right? They don't yeah. think that it has anything to do with Freddy whereas a lot of the other kills it's about Freddy kind of like slicing and dicing somebody. Yeah, and and I, another thing, I think it's like you see all of his friends just like screaming at him from the window. And like normally, like in the first one, the girl is being dragged up on the ceiling and her boyfriend sees it. But it's like this is like a lot of people are bearing witness to it and they can't do anything about it. Yeah, it has a, uh, a cer certain extra kind of sinister quality to it. What was uh, what was one of the other ones? Um, well, this the other one more is a classic, I think. Um it's not necessarily a horror movie, but for the longest time, I thought that I had either made it up or dreamed it was the face morph um, of Large Marge, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. <laughs> a, uh, a scene that it's more horror focused, but one of the scenes that I always bring up whenever I talk about like first introductions to horror that kind of scarred us as a kid was the face melter scene in Poltergeist when the oh, forensic... Yeah forensic specialist or whatever is like looking in the mirror and he sees in the reflection his face is melting and he, then he starts to like rip chunks of his face off and it's yeah. one of those one of those scenes in a pg movie from back in the day that should not have been in a pg movie because no. it kind of just sneaks up on you with how fucked up it is yeah the last one's a really weird one because i woke up in the middle of the night 
I don't even remember how old I was, but I woke up in the middle of the night and my TV was still on and this movie was playing and it had like, you know how when you wake up in the middle of the night, you're in that like half awake fugue state. Um, I saw this horrific creature person type thing on the screen and I had no idea what it was, um, but it made me like not able to go to sleep for a long time. And then I spent like years and years trying to figure out where that came from. And I, I just kept looking and looking and I, I could never find it until like two years ago. And um, what it turned out to be is from a really shitty movie that's not scary at all. But um, it's from The Howling Part 6. The Holy shit, I the didn't know they made that many. I know. Uh, the and it's subtitled The Freaks. I'm just going to send you this screenshot real quick of what it looks like. Sure. So this came out in 1991, apparently, because I did a little bit of research on it afterwards. And I also watched it, and it's not scary at all. But when I woke up to this, it was horrifying, and it like gave me nightmares oh, for the longest time. Yeah. That is one of those things, too, where, I don't know, I feel like there was something, too, back in the day when you didn't immediately know the context behind like a horror movie or a scene from a horror movie that you saw on TV. Again, coming back to those like clip shows that I watched as a kid, because for the most part, I wasn't allowed to watch a lot of like R-rated movies as a kid. So I would rely on those kind of like clip shows yeah. to educate me on what horror was in a lot of different ways. And I mean, seeing a lot of those images and not having context, if anything, just like made them that much more terrifying or that much more unsettling because just the complete lack of context. I mean, now, if you if I had gone into it or seeing that image, knowing like, oh, this is the sixth sequel that might be pretty shitty from 91, like even yeah. little bits of context kind of just help like spell out what you're seeing. But when you're a young kid and you don't have any context for it, it kind of just becomes that much more haunting. Yeah, like I've seen that. that much more I've seen the very last scene from Don't Look Now so many times, but I've never seen Don't Look Now. Like the oh, okay. freaky <laughs> little serial killer in the red jacket. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's how it was for me with um, that movie, The Brood. Oh, yeah, I only yeah, just yeah. saw that movie a couple of years ago because the, for the most part, I'd only seen the clip with like the little clones in the kitchen that are scurrying around <laughs> and they're attacking people. And then that scene scared the shit out of me. So I never seeked out the movie until like fairly recently. But in, tra in transitioning over to Mandy, do you remember your initial reaction upon watching it? Because I feel like Mandy's one of those films that everybody walks out of and they have a completely different interpretation of it or a completely different kind of just overall experience with the movie itself. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I kind of gauge as, <laughs> at this point um, how much I like a horror movie um, by how excited I am at the very end. And that's it's like it was basically like this was just what I needed when I saw it first. This was everything I want. Yeah, I mean, it very much is more than just kind of, hey, this was a horror movie that I enjoyed. I feel like in a lot of ways, it's more about kind of like the experience of it and getting drawn into like, not just the fact that there's like demons and Nicolas Cage, who has one of his best performances ever, but it's really is like getting drawn into the world of that movie through kind of like the visuals and of course the score, which is fantastic. Um, I was so fortunate when I went to go see this that 
my buddy and I went opening night and because it had a super limited release when it came out. I think it had just like a few, maybe a hundred theaters in the US. There was one theater in our city that played it one night. Yeah, that was that it. was exactly how it was. Even in like Boston, like it was insane to me that it had one showing on a Friday night and that was it for the week. Um, but we showed up a few minutes later than we were intended and the theater was full. And so we were like, well, fuck, we could just sit in the aisles. And they're like, you can't do that. And I was like, well, what are we going to do? And they just gave us basically an entire theater, like a smaller size theater to ourselves to watch it. And we had, oh, nice. we were able to like spread out and everything. And it was, I mean, it was amazing. I thought just in terms of like, obviously the movie itself, but then to have that just kind of like block everybody else out and just vibe with the movie. Cause yeah. it is very much again, kind of like that visual audio is just such a key component to getting into the groove of Panos's movies. Yeah, did yeah. you, uh, did you see beyond the black rainbow? Yeah. I, I saw it after I saw Mandy. Me too. Um, you know, it's, it's, I think another one that's really like arresting visually and it's kind of paced. I feel like it's kind of paced the same way the whole first hour of Mandy is paced. It's, I don't know that it, that it hit me as hard as Mandy did, but then I, I, I remember hearing that he, Panos Cosmatos said that after he got done with that movie, he wanted to like do the, the polar opposite of, uh, of Black Rainbow. So I don't know, maybe it's because it was like kind of divorced of emotion or something, or just cause it's very, very clean and sterile. Um, I like it, um, but it didn't hit me quite as hard. Yeah, that's I. So I had the same experience. I saw Beyond the Black Rainbow after Mandy, um, and I only just recently revisited Beyond the Black Rainbow before I kind of had an appreciation for seeing like the roots of his very unique kind of like vision of horror. And mm -hmm. I mean, with Mandy, I think he perfects that in a lot of ways. In that he takes that visual and auditory sensations that he's such a fan of and kind of like playing around with like you said sterile bright neon light colors and things like that and yet he completely uh developed a narrative that's actually like engaging that was my big problem with beyond the black rainbow is that the narrative is there's not much there to work with a lot of it you're yeah. kind of just you're picking up on from the different parts of kind of just like environmental storytelling and things like that there aren't really a lot of strong characters outside of the antagonist probably because yeah. obviously the protagonist to be on the black rainbow she doesn't have any lines um, obviously which hurts getting to kind of like understanding who she is but i think with mandy again like he really does such a fantastic job of refining the narrative and within the same pacing though as beyond the black rainbow right because like we had mentioned the first hour of mandy is really the setup for the last 45 minutes that kind of explodes into this kind of hellish uh, journey of revenge that Red gets sent on. Um, but it really struck me how well Panos kind of drops you into the world of Mandy from the very beginning of the film. And there isn't a whole lot of kind of just exposition that's given to the viewer. It's more just kind of you're dropped into this world where Nicolas Cage is a lumberjack and then you kind of just experience all the different variables of it through his shoes, as it were. Yeah. And I mean, you can tell, like, there's some shit going on inside his head from the very first scene 
when he gets on the helicopter. You know, they've got those extended brooding shots of his face where you kind of don't know if he's, if it's like he's got something going on from his past or if it's like a, I don't know, maybe a premonition type thing. It's, but you can tell something's kind of off with him where he's only, he only seems to like smile when he's around Mandy, which right. I guess, you know, and that's another thing I, I listened to a little interview with Panos Cosmatos where he talks about how this, it's a revenge story, how most revenge stories focus on the, the protagonist who is the person who is enacting the revenge or whatever, but this more focuses on the victim yeah, to the point that the first, I mean, basically the first hour of the movie is all about their relationship, right? And yeah. originally, I think one of the things that I was a little put off about the movie when I first saw it, and it's something that, I mean, I've seen this movie now, I think, I watched it three times, I think, within the last two months, just because, yeah. like, prep for this, and then and uh, we did a live tweet with somebody, uh, with a group of people. I know, I used to put it on in the background for some reason. That's Well, <laughs> That's a testament to, I mean, how well the visuals and the score is. Like, yeah, you could just have that on in the background and kind of vibe to it while you're working. Yeah, it's like, it's. I love sitting down and giving it my undivided attention, but I also love just having it in the background. Right, absolutely. But yeah, getting back to kind of like just experiencing the world and and learning about the characters through their actions. Like, like you said, Red is very brooding and you can tell that he's somebody that has a lot going on. And yet he doesn't have to tell you that. I mean, you notice right off the bat when he gets on the chopper that one of his coworkers like offers him a drink on the flight to their vehicles or wherever, and he declines. And already you can tell that he's kind of like an outsider. He doesn't really fit in with his crew in a lot of different ways. And yet you even, you get the sense that like he is a hard worker who's determined. And yet for some reason, he's kind of like, he's shunned from everybody else in a way. And I mean, you even get that when he's driving to his house and that the on the radio there's a type there's I forget what it is I think it's like Ronald Reagan or something and Ronald Reagan's talking about like divisiveness or hate or something like that and he just turns it off like this idea that he's very much removed from people in the real world and the rest of the world and then as soon as Mandy's introduced like that's his rock he's this big goofy cuddly guy that only opens up for this one person yep and then they take that away from him <laughs> Yeah, and I think that's really important in that all that time that's dedicated to establishing their relationship, it makes the revenge aspect in the second half of the film that much more, not only just like impactful, but there's an emotional charge there, right? I mean, there's so many revenge movies where the motivation for the revenge and the person that gets killed, that all unfolds within the first, what, 15 minutes of the movie? Whereas here, Panos really spends a lot of time showing us why these two, why this person's death is so impactful to red other than she's a plot device yeah and it makes the payoff fucking huge yeah exactly <laughs> and we yeah cuz i mean we see these horrific things happen to him for so much of the movie and then finally when he gets an opportunity to kind of dole it out then it's that much more satisfying what did you think of the kind of importance of them breaking up the different the film into three distinct acts in terms of they have, uh, what's the very beginning? It's the shadowy mountains, which kind of like establishes their haven, which is their, their woodland getaway as it were. 
they have the children of the new dawn and then they have it says the title is mandy and that comes out i think that's an hour into the movie and that's the first time you see the title of the movie what did you think of that decision to kind of break up the film into three acts like that first off the title cards rock um they're like the it reminds me of like heavy metal magazine yeah yeah i think that you know it does a good job at kind of presenting the three acts of the of the story where one is like the blissful you know lovers and then two is where we introduce this this source of conflict and then three is when all hell breaks loose yeah that and that's putting it lightly right yeah i think too something again that i wasn't able to appreciate until i rewatched the movie a couple of times is just panos's ability to make even the mundane super engaging like when we're getting to know mandy and we're seeing kind of their normal day-to-day life just seeing her reading a book is made visually engaging whereas if it was somebody else it would just be a character reading a book and yet the ways in which Panos and their cinematographer, uh, Benjamin Loeb, capture everything and kind of distort the audio in different ways. And they it, it's the beginning of this kind of like nightmarish, otherworldly presentation that the whole movie is uh, not only shot in, but like the further into the movie you get, the more engrossing the world becomes. Yeah, yeah. And like as, as far as the cinematography goes, like when you it's it's. And I think that I I only noticed this a few times, a few watches into it. Like there are certain times when they will, they'll show you something, but they'll like flash a green strobe light on it to, that only the viewer can see, you know, you know, that this is happening in, you know, these people's cabin, but this weird ocarina that's like carved out of concrete or something (laughs) you can tell it's really really important because they're they're flashing this creepy green light on it yeah i think that again that's a really great example of them making something that by all accounts should be just a fairly normal shot and yet it's made otherworldly in the portrayal of it in the way that they kind of use light to reinforce certain elements of this world because the world itself is grounded and yet there's all these very supernatural and otherworldly things and events that happen within that grounded world and i mean they they translate that to the audience through that green strobe light which i believe they only use when it's it's like demon artifacts because like you said there's that ocarina and then i forget what it's called but it's like a sacred knife that again looks like it's made out of concrete stab red with yeah and he miraculously heals from somehow yeah but uh he's not phased at all he well he maybe he took a health potion Right, yeah, the health potion being just like dumping vodka all over his open wounds. <laughs> well, yeah. well, I mean, the whole thing, you know, you know, Mandy's reading like a fantasy novel throughout the first half, but I think the whole thing's basically a fantasy novel. Yeah, it's absolutely, basic, yeah. And it could maybe even be the thing that she's reading. You know, it's kind of just, you know, um, Jeremiah Sand is like the evil wizard or whatever. And... um red is her uh, shining knight that yep. ends up decapitating motherfuckers yeah <laughs> i mean the visuals again this is something that i'm glad that he that panos kind of built on from beyond the black rainbow because if there's one element i wanted him to evolve on it would be 
the visuals because that film is so even if you don't care for the narrative and beyond the black rainbow like that is a visually stimulating movie at almost oh, yeah. every turn and mandy it's even more so because this time you're actually invested in what's happening in these people that are in this film and i mean it it sounds kind of like like a tagline just to say this movie is like a nightmare but it really is like it is this kind of otherworldly nightmare and at certain points you're almost like it's either everybody in this movie is on drugs or I'm on drugs, which is a possibility. But the way that the whole movie is kind of just has this dreamlike quality to it. I mean, it just heightens everything that happens in the whole movie. Here's something I was thinking about. Um, Nicholas Cage's performance, where I think we both agree that it's awesome. Yes. And I think we probably also both agree that um, a lot of people give Nicholas Cage a bad rap. And are, are, are you in agreement with me about that? Absolutely, yeah. I think this is probably his best performance in terms of like what, like I haven't seen, I have not seen as wide of a range of Nicolas Cage films as some other people might have. But I mean, I can't think off the top of my head of a performance that is a combination of his like, quote unquote, like patented Cage rage, but then also having sort of this emotional arc to it where, Every time I watch this movie, it becomes heavier and heavier every single time Mandy dies because of the way that he reacts to that. Obviously, we see that the one person he connects to in the world gets lit on fire in a bag in front of him. And I mean, seeing him kind of like cradle her ashes and then the ashes fall apart in his hands, like that becomes more and more heartbreaking to the point that when he goes in the bathroom and kind of relapses and starts chugging vodka in his underwear, I mean, and does that guttural scream like, that becomes less and less funny every time I watch the movie just because of how palpably like poignant it is and how yeah. heartbreaking it is that this guy is experiencing that. And I feel like you could you could probably I, I I feel like you could hear that people think he's overacting in that one scene. But I also kind of feel like if you haven't been there, you don't know, you know. Right. You know, if you've ever felt that way. It doesn't look too far off. <laughs> you can't uh, you can't judge a guy doing that if you haven't lived through it yourself. Yeah. But yeah, I think also like that scene when he kind of has that that cage rage moment. I mean, that is a pivotal role in the movie where for the first hour he's so restrained in terms of just like he barely speaks to her. When he does, it's very much he's kind of very he's very open with her. He's very innocent. He's not this kind of like macho guy. And then when he has that freak out moment, like all bets are off. Then he starts decapitating people. He's forging axes out of uh, out of steel and all these different things. And it just kind of fits with the overall trajectory of the movie, right? This idea that, oh, all bets are off. He's going to get revenge and he's going to run through everything that gets in his way. And that really is the kind of catalyst moment that this sends him off. Yeah, it's that transformation. But I mean, something that I really appreciate and I... It's why I think Panos's style is next level and nobody can really, you can't really compare anybody to him in terms of like the sort of subgenre of horror that he's crafted is that he's so unapologetic and what he's making, there's a lot of like pulpiness to it. Like there's the antagonist or hippie cult members. There's a uh, LSD drinking biker demons on paper. None of this makes sense. And yet, he backs everything up with 
this very refined kind of visual style to it and presentation that, I mean, it all works in a way that it really shouldn't on paper. No, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, I think that that helping, uh, like equating it to, to a, a fantasy story also kind of helps where it's like, the, this is what this character is. This is what this character is. And you can take it literally or you can take it like, this is what these people represent. Like this these these crazy bikers are like these these orc barbarians that were hired by the evil wizard to kidnap the knight's girlfriend mm -hmm. except they fucked up the kidnapping and just lit her yeah. on fire exactly <laughs> i don't i mean i have to ask you the question then like can anybody other than cage play this role uh n not in my head <laughs> yeah exactly like it is on again on paper it's a role that is very traditional and yet Cage really captures the arc of that character so well in that he plays the the doting boyfriend at the beginning or doting husband but then when that thing that he loves in this world is taken away from him we just see a transformation into somebody that I mean in the final moments of the film he's covered from head to toe in blood just smiling at a ghost yeah. <laughs> and I mean he's completely unrecognizable so I mean yeah for my money there's nobody else that could really play Red Miller. And I love that that's the first time he smiles in the movie since yeah. the like the, the the first time we see him with Mandy. I mean, yeah. They just, man, Panos beats the fuck out of him for 45 <laughs> minutes straight and just is so unrelenting in it. And I mean, to a point, like, you, it's ballsy to, like, do all the things that Panos has happened to him over the course of the movie. Obviously, we see the protagonists get beat down a lot, but I mean, he's getting nails stuck through his hand on top of obviously his uh, partner being killed, but he's getting nails shoved into his hand. He's getting beat up by these uh, coked out demons and everything. And I mean, it, it really is unrelenting for like a good 45 minutes that that buildup kind of feels very justified. So that whole, that whole scene where, where he's got the nail in his hand, I, the last time I watched it, I think, um, I don't know why the the absurdity of 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 one line really got me and i was like laughing my ass off because you know i feel like I, you always laugh at like the cheddar goblin part right where it kind of you know juxtaposes this weird absurd commercial with what just happened to him but <laughs> i don't know why this hit me and i don't but uh there's there's that part where he's 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 handcuffed to the pipe and he's got the the nail in his hand and that guy comes in and he says something like something like you have a death wish or something like yeah, that. Yeah, you have a death wish. And then he goes, "I don't want to talk about that." <laughs> and I don't know why that line get got me last time, but it's very funny to me. Yeah, that's one of those things that Cage has that quality and even when you have a line like that that if that was anybody else I feel like that would be a throwaway but the way yeah. that he gives that line versus the rest of the film and how like <laughs> serious he is like yeah why wouldn't you laugh at that line and that becomes a moment in the film that is made memorable by Cage yeah. and I mean on the opposite end of kind of the other side of the coin of the narrative is that you have the antagonist Jeremiah Sand played by Linus Roach um, who I don't think Linus Roach gets enough credit for how good of an antagonist he plays in this movie, given yeah. 
how insane the movie is and the way it looks and all of the violence that occurs later on. I mean, Linus Roach gives such a grounded... His character is obviously very kind of like Manson-esque and he's good at manipulating people and he's full of himself and he's psychotic and yet he's very grounded in this insane world in a way that is actually like very terrifying yeah. throughout the movie because if you remove all the demons and supernatural stuff, Linus Roach could be, or uh, Jeremiah Sand could just be anybody. He could be in our timeline for all we know. Yeah. And I felt really stupid. Um, I didn't put together the first time I watched it. The, the, the song that he plays is actually his song. Yeah. Like, and that's kind of also shows you how full of himself he is because he's like, yeah, I really like the Carpenters, but this is better. And he right. plays his own <laughs> song on the record player. Well, I love that uh, Panos includes that moment where it's like he's exposing a character flaw of basically everybody that's ever become like a cult leader or something like that. It's that they were a massive failure at the first thing that they tried. And it's like, oh, the only thing you can succeed at is manipulating and ruining other people's lives. Yeah, um, That's a really fantastic scene, not only because of kind of the humor in that, but also like, again, it's an example of his refined visual style, right? This idea that he's able to make this encounter with a clearly psychotic character super trippy and engaging in a way that I don't know that every director could just because obviously Mandy is d uh, drugged with, it's basically like LSD and then she gets stabbed with an insect. With a big uh, old with, hornet or something. Yeah, with the hornet. Again, like that's a quality of the movie that makes no sense and yet it makes perfect sense within the context of yeah. what's happening and then it's kind of just potion. that yeah exactly again back to the uh the fantasy angle but you have that scene where eventually then you kind of have this you're looking into jeremiah sand's face and then his face and mandy's face begin to kind of like morph together oh yeah and i mean on every level this movie it feels because that's something you would dream about in a nightmare. Somebody's face morphing into somebody else, losing a sense of your identity and all these things. I mean, it's yeah, it's a very visually engaging movie from start to finish. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And as like as far as the cult goes, I like to. I don't know. I think that maybe the 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 guy characters are a little more one dimensional, um, like those two guys with the long hair that kind of look the same. <laughs> Yeah. They're kind of they're probably just like sadistic freaks who wanted an excuse to have an outlet for their you know their their sadistic tendencies but um whatever the name of the uh the the older lady I don't remember what her name is um but you kind of wonder was she a Mandy back you know when when she first joined the cult um you know, was she was she brainwashed? Was she was she? I don't know. Was she kidnapped by by um, Jeremiah? And now that he's bored with her, she's got like such Stockholm syndrome that she's like, you know, I mean, she's obviously jealous of Mandy, and um, I kind of think that she kind of relished the fact that. Um, the whole thing didn't work out with her and that they ended up killing her because she wants to be number one. No, absolutely, yeah. And you can even see that with um, the younger woman that plays uh, Russian Roulette. Oh, yeah, that Sister one Lucy. Yeah, yeah, Sister Lucy. I mean, 
it shows this idea that, and I mean, to an outsider, it's so obvious what's happening. Like Jeremiah Sand is just abusing these women. And then once he's done with them, he's done with them kind of thing. And it again speaks to kind of the, uh, the, the major character flaw of like cult leaders and stuff. This idea that like, yeah, I'm just going to use whoever to get what I want. And then as soon as I'm done with them, they're going to get cast aside. But yeah, I mean, she is a very, again, like you said, the males are all very kind of one dimensional. They're just serve as like muscle or lap dogs. And then you have the women there that are kind of, uh, there's more to their characters, this idea that they're basically, he just keeps grooming these women for his needs. And then they're so brainwashed that when he casts them aside, they're still kind of there. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a tragic kind of like motley crew of, uh, of, <laughs> of disciples. Where but Ma- Mandy of- also wears motley crew t-shirts. Oh, <laughs> that's true. That's very true. Uh, the, there's one quote that Red has that I think kind of perfectly encapsulates the children of the new dawn in that when he's visiting Bill Duke, shout out Bill Duke to get the, uh, the Reaper, that crossbow, he's describing them as like, they're Jesus freaks, they're weirdo hippie types. There was muscle, there was bikers. It didn't make any sense. Like that line makes me laugh so hard every time I watch the movie, because it's true again. This is a combination of elements that should not work on paper. Yeah. If I if I was going to pitch you a movie and I said like, yeah, it's about hippies, it's about Jesus freaks, it's about LSD drinking demon bikers, you would be like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. Why would you think that that would make sense? Like it's <laughs> it really is Panos's own creative style that is so wholly unique and he has a very clear-cut vision of the weird, what doesn't make any sense on paper and yet he's able to craft an environment where all that insanity makes sense. I think I ranked this movie number one on my top 10 horror movies of the decade. So I don't I mean, know. I just love it. It, def- it definitely deserves to be up there. Yeah. I mean, what are some of your fate? Cause in talking about like the second half of the film, when it's all revenge narrative and whatnot, or he's red is finally able to enact his revenge. The whole movie is a revenge movie, but what were some of your favorite moments once he's kind of like set loose? He escapes his barbed wire restraints and uh, sets out to get the uh, the black skulls. Um, I kind of think that the um, the black skulls themselves are kind of interesting, um, because it kind of seems like they're this invincible, unstoppable force. Like he tries to run them over with his car, and he he doesn't. He's not able to do that and things like that. But once, and I don't know what it is. It's, and maybe it's something like, I don't know, maybe the LSD is kind of a magic potion type thing um, that gives them superpowers because when he, when he escapes and he starts killing them, he's able to actually kill them and hurt them pretty substantially you know mm-hmm. yeah, um and I would pretty, say so. pretty easily um so i kind of i kind of wonder it's like well maybe have they not have they not taken their lsd recently or something <laughs> so they're more vulnerable right yeah i think that the bikers are so again like panos is able to take so many different influences and insert them into this one facet of the film right there's these three dark skulls which are just demon bikers and yet each of them feels like an inspiration from a different movie. You have the one that's encased in metal, which kind of reminded me of like uh, Tetsuo, the Iron Man. Oh yeah. You've got 
the pervert with the knife dick, which yeah. <laughs> I don't know what he reminds me of, but like it's disturbing and makes no sense. Seven. But, uh, oh, yeah, seven. There you go. Yep. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, and then you have like the gooey Cenobite that is just like dripping the entire time, which is absolutely disgusting. But I mean, yeah, like to your point, you were talking about earlier in the film, they're perceived as being uh, invincible. And yet the stronger and the more driven Red becomes, he's able to kind of dispatch of them more quickly to the point where he slits one of their throats, he breaks one of their necks, which is like an action action cage yeah. moment where he kind of displays this feat of strength that you didn't know he had. And then obviously like the car fight, which the flaming car fight, which is probably one of my favorite moments of the film, just because the violence was kind of, it was very simplistic for a lot of the movie. And then it just grew as the movie kind of the, the arc increases, it just becomes more and more technical and brutal all in the way that yeah. is almost unrecognizable at the beginning of the movie in a way that's just super satisfying. Yeah. And a little choreographed too. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I had read that uh, between the flaming car axe fight and the the Texas or the chainsaw duel scene, yeah. they can only film those in like one night, oh, yeah. which seems insane to me, <laughs> considering how uh, how highly choreographed they were. Yeah, yeah, the chainsaw fight was fun. Yeah, uh, that was insane. And again, it's a good insertion of humor because Cage thinks he has the upper hand, and then that guy breaks out a saw that's about six times the size of his. Yeah. <laughs> have a, uh, a literal measuring contest in characters other than Linus Roach or Nicolas Cage. Who was another character that kind of stood out to you? Um, well, like I was saying, the, um, the, the, the lady mother, mother Marlene mm -hmm. is her name. Mother Marlene. I think that, that more so than what, even what I was saying earlier, where, what, what was she like before? And is this where, where Mandy would have ended up, you know, if she hadn't, you know, laughed at Jeremiah's penis and song. Um, <laughs> but like the, the scene towards almost the very, very end when he kills mother Marlene and she's trying to like, basically do anything she can say to stay alive. And she's trying to seduce him or something. And she's like, something like, um, Jeremiah says that I'm the the most sensitive lover he's ever had or something like that. Um, I feel like she's still trying to find a use case for herself. Like she's trying to convince herself that because I feel like we saw before, like towards the beginning of the movie where she says something like, did I do something wrong? And Jeremiah is like, everything you do is wrong. <laughs> so we already Such know that he, he basically hates her, but she's trying to convince herself that he doesn't and that she's still his favorite. Yeah, I mean, she really is a tragic character other than the fact that she is uh, so so much of a bitch to Mandy. Like, yeah. I mean, uh, other than that, like her character is kind of very tragic and you see, and it's an example for Mandy of like, if Mandy doesn't do something to intervene with the trajectory she's on, that's what she's going to be like. And does she just want to be like a sexual prop of this guy or is she going to laugh at his hog? And I mean, that's what happens. <laughs> we see how that ends up. Um, but a character that I really, really like in the film that I wish was in it 
more than he is is the chemist who's played by oh, Richard, yeah, Richard Brake. Brake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he's who, awesome. I mean, in every single movie he's in, no matter how big of a part it is, he leaves such a distinct uh, impression on you. Just in terms of this character, the chemist barely has any lines. He's probably got like 10 lines in the movie, but he's the character that I always think of after like a Red or Mandy in that, I mean, again, it's so fucking weird. This guy that is an LSD chemist that has a golden Luger that just listens to crazy techno and music and he's got, he's got a pet tiger named Lizzie. Um, and then he's telepathic, I guess, because he does so much LSD that yeah. that's how he communicates with, uh, with Red. Well, and it's kind of like he's been watching everything unfold as it's happened because he already knows what's what's been happening, even though he hasn't been a part of it at all. Exactly, and he acts as the um, the antenna that's above the chemist facility. Remember, like there's that part where Red asks him telepathically, like, "Where is Jeremiah Sand?" And he does this weird thing where he like looks up in the sky, opens his mouth, and makes a noise. Oh yeah, and yeah. then all of a sudden he knows where he's at. And I mean, again, on paper, that should not work. Nobody would read that and be like, "Yeah, that scene makes total sense. We're totally going to do that." He's in this. <laughs> he's an LSD chemist that has a tiger, and there's this crazy light system going on inside of a trailer. Like, again, <laughs> it just speaks to this wholly unique and weird film and of course of events that it all just falls together in a way that it makes sense within the context of this fucked up fantasy world that uh panos has created yeah and richard breaks just so good oh man he's the yeah he's the I best i first saw him in 31 and yes oh my Doomhead. god yeah that monologue is that monologue sold me on anything that richard break ever wants to be yeah. on and i'll watch it absolutely he's one of those guys that again like he doesn't need a lot to be memorable. And that's one of the most memorable parts of the movie for me. Again, it it's a display of the kind of weirdness of Panos's narratives and yet also the visual style to back it up with. Like there's a fucking tiger in a cage named Lizzie that doesn't freak out and kill both of them as soon as it escapes. And when they look down, they see that there's like worms at their feet all of a sudden. Yeah. I mean, there's so many films out there that there's directors that kind of like they excel at bizarreness and whatnot, and yet I don't always walk away satisfied with their movies the way that I do with Mandy or even on a rewatch like Beyond the Black Rainbow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In terms of, uh, like, if you had to describe Mandy in five words or less, what words would they be? Oh, my God. <laughs> See, this is where I'm going to sound really stupid. Um. <laughs> I mean, mine would be, like, metal as fuck. Just yeah. leave it at that. <laughs> oh, okay. I mean, Here's something I wanted to talk about that I you just reminded me of. Um, the movie is very metal, but there's no metal music in it. So I feel like that kind of speaks to how aesthetic metal is. It's like the you can watch the movie and you can think 100% without a doubt, heavy metal. This, mm. this shit is metal as fuck. Yeah. <laughs> but you don't have to hear any metal. And I almost right. feel like metal as a soundtrack would have been way too overbearing yeah. and on the nose um mm -hmm. but that's one thing that i think is just really cool about the movie is like it's visually metal but it's not it's not musically metal and that's the more interesting element in a lot of ways to metal for me at least in that like i'm very captivated by the aesthetic of it and the yeah. look of it in a lot of ways and how much 
personality and creativity can come through that. Whereas if the film had had this crazy metal soundtrack, it definitely would have been, it, it, the visuals being metal and the soundtrack being metal would just be overwhelming, I think. And in making a film, I mean, it speaks to Panos's filming style in that he's not really interested. I think the quote that he gave goes something like, it's not really the narrative that's interesting. It's the interesting and engaging way in which you explore the narrative. And yeah. I mean, at the heart of this movie, it's a basic revenge story. And yet his visual style is what makes it so extraordinary. And to your yeah. point, like the texture, he takes that texture of metal and applies it to the visuals. Meanwhile, uh, Johanna Johannesson, who does the soundtrack, like he creates this kind of this synth lullaby that goes along with it that has elements of like fantasy in it. And yet it's also very kind of modern in certain ways. Yeah. And also we get to see basically over the course of the movie, we get to see metal crush the um, the uh, psychedelic uh, folksy music that came before it. Right, exactly, yeah. That's a fantastic point. And that was that was kind of part of Beyond the Black Rainbow as well, right? This idea that the new age are fighting back and basically crushing the old wave, or yeah. whether it be generationally, like people from that generation or music and things from that generation. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a really great point in that you have Jeremiah Sand who's like this shitty what kind of music would you say he produced like folk music yeah it's like a sh or, like 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 i think it's like psychedelic folk music like very reminiscent of like hippie music from the 60s yeah and then you have this motherfucker with a metal battle axe that he made in his yeah. garage just decapitating people and, and uh squeezing people's eyes out of their skulls uh, but i mean in mentioning that that final scene between red and jeremiah sand I think is so fantastic because again it's kind of full circle this idea of red who is the new the new age person is literally like squeezing the life out of this figure that is very much from the previous generations and previous ways of thinking and lifestyles and things like that yeah and that's when you finally see the mask come off too yeah when he's like i'll suck your dick you're like, <laughs> yeah this guy's full of shit from the beginning and he he knows it but you saw his mask slip for just a second before he yeah. he put it back on right before he died. And that's what's so great, I think, about Linus Roach's kind of uh, portrayal of that character in that you see the facade and you see how quickly Jeremiah Sand can switch in and out between that facade. And then, of course, he goes right back into he's raging about how Red is not his god and all these different things. And it's just it shows the kind of demented state of mind that that character is in throughout the whole movie. Yeah. So one, two, three, four, five, this movie kicks, um, ass totally. It's five <laughs> words. I don't know. <laughs> that, that's, that's good I, I mean, enough for me. Yeah. I mean, that's how I would describe it. I mean, it really is one of those movies that just, if you explain it to somebody, they're going to be like, there's no way that that could be enjoyable to a certain extent. Like for most people, I feel like if they hear all the different variables that go into this movie, it's just like, what? That just sounds like, like nonsense. And yet again, Panos has such a refined style that it doesn't feel like an afterthought. It doesn't feel like a bunch of cheap kind of like pulpy tropes that are thrown together into a pot basically and mixed in with Nicolas Cage's uh, signature cage rage, right? It feels yeah. like a world that is able to have Nicolas Cage's kind of like 
off the charts energy in, but at the same time, it's refined enough that he spends the time to invest us in that character and in the character that means the most to him. So it's not just Nicolas Cage raging the whole movie. Like it's a guy that is very distant from the rest of society. And he has the one thing that he loves in this world taken from him. Yeah. And it's like, I, I, I feel like I've, I've heard people talk about how slow the first half of it is and how maybe it's boring or whatever, but that's kind of what get got me invested in the rest of the movie. It's like a lot of exactly. revenge movies, like you were saying, it's just like you set it up the first 10 minutes and then the rest of it's just, you know, whatever. But I feel like the, it kind of raises the stakes for everything is just to see, I guess, all the mundane stuff that happens. Um, you know, that's what makes that's what makes people appreciate each other is like the the mundane things that happen between each other that makes them happy and that's what kind of makes it suck even more when Absolutely. it's all it's all killed yeah i mean we don't have to be told that these two are in love with each other and that they've been a couple for i would assume years because we see that like when red shows up he they have some little cutesy inside joke with each other that the film doesn't kind of give us exposition for or perseverate on that long. And then I still like that line too. I don't know. It doesn't make any sense as a joke, but Eric Estrada from chips is, yeah. is it's, <laughs> I still say that it's fun to right. say. I mean, that is for that moment should resonate with anybody that's been in a long-term relationship. Like, you know, that you found the person you want to be with when you guys have some joke that, when anybody else hears it, like it sounds like nonsense and it's dumb, but then it's not about what other how other people perceive it. It's about the meaning it has between you and another person. Yeah. So, I mean, between that and them talking about like planets at night and he talks about Galactus yeah. and all these like little nerdy, geeky inside jokes and things like that. Like those are the conversations that you wouldn't have with somebody that you were seeing casually or whatever. Like it's very refreshing to see a relationship unfold organically in a way that you just you know that they've been together for a long time because of those conversations. You don't have to be yeah. told the movie doesn't have to begin with like, oh, this is our 10th anniversary or something like that. It's that, all very kind of organic. That's why it hurts so bad when it's taken away. Yeah, absolutely. And it speaks to Red's rage and how that rage is like once that kind of fire gets lit under his ass when he's freed and he has his uh, his cheddar goblin commercial and his vodka bath like that's why he goes completely off the rails and he's like, yeah, I'm going to go cut off motherfuckers heads and shoot people in the throat with arrows. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's a film that, I mean, every single time I watch it, I definitely enjoy it more for a lot of different reasons. Like, like I'd said before, when the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, that beginning was kind of slow. And then, I mean, in revisiting it so many times since it came out, I'm like, no, this, I'm actually more engaged and more in tune with the protagonist and like the loss that he experiences rather than a female character that serves as a love interest, kind of just like plot device that dies in the first yeah. 10 minutes or I so. I mean, she kind of haunts him throughout the whole movie after she dies with those, like yeah. those weird little animated vignettes and stuff. It's basically all heavy his, metal. His, yeah. Yeah, totally. And there's another, there's another metal thing in wrapping up. I mean, I'm glad that you, are such a fan of this movie and I had a chance to talk to you about it. Were there any other little moments of the movie that we skipped over you wanted to mention? Um, 
So my favorite parts of the movie, um, a lot of my favorite parts of the movie are what feel like throwaway lines. Like we've talked about that Eric Estrada from Chips is one. I don't want to talk about that is another one. Um, the uh, the part in uh, the chemist's lab when he sets the tiger free and he goes, bye Lizzie. I don't know why yeah. it feels so like, it feels so out of place and absurd, but I feel like all of these little absurd moments are just kind of interjected into these really serious parts and uh i don't know i just love them all yeah absolutely this is if anything it's a movie of there's tons of humor in the movie and yet it's very subtle in a way that you can enjoy it over and over again like they're not like these elaborate gags it's kind of like these little moments that are kind of jarring compared to the rest of the movie and yet they fit so well given how random the film's world is it's just like yeah all of these different things on their own are very strange, but I feel like when you combine all of them, it makes it into something that's really special. And I mean, for me, it's a movie that I enjoy more and more every time I watch it. Yeah. I also wonder if the, um, the, uh, the, the black skull who rides the four wheeler, do you think he failed his motorcycle test? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think they all failed to some extent, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, those are probably some of the coolest characters that have been in a horror movie that I can think of in like the last decade. Like I love it when characters are introduced that are so mysterious. Again, we don't know anything about them other than I believe they were like drug mules that were running drugs on the interstate and then they took a bad batch of LSD and they turned into demons or something. But like it's all very vague and yet they're so menacing and they're so terrifying and they're so unique in their own kind of design that I mean... Other than uh, the only other like biker characters from horror that I can think of are the bikers from, uh, did you ever see Hobo with a Shotgun? Yeah. Yeah, I did. With, uh, I Rucker forget what his name Hauer. is. Yeah, Rucker, Rucker Hauer. But there's like those two bikers that are like demons or something also in that, which are just. Yeah. Yeah, there's them. And then there's the, the Tom Savini biker gang in Dawn of the Dead. And that's about it. I think. Yeah, and that's about it. But. It, it sounds like if you put bikers in a horror movie, uh, you and I will definitely watch it. Yes. But uh, yeah, man, and wrapping up, I appreciate you coming on and getting to chat about Mandy because this is a movie that I think, like obviously a lot of hardcore horror fans have, are familiar with it, but it's one that, I mean, I wish everyone would watch just because of how unique it truly is. It's one yeah. of those movies that it's either, it's you're either going to walk away and be so confused and annoyed or you're going to be like, oh, there are still kind of these super original stories to be told in horror that make the genre exciting in new ways. And I mean, I can't wait to see what he makes next. Yeah, totally. I haven't heard anything about what he's making next, but I know it's going to be good. Uh, unfortunately, he the his creative process seems to take a long time. I think, yeah. what, how many years in between Black Rainbow and this? It was like, probably five or so, right? Yeah. I don't no, know. I think it was more than that. I think it was like 10 Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, it was it uh it was 8. Okay. So Black Rainbow was uh 2010, Mandy was 2018. So in and... 6 years we'll see his next movie. Yeah. Kick ass. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. But uh thanks again man for coming on. I had fun chatting about Mandy with you. Yeah, thanks for having me, dude. Anytime. Love to have you on again in the future to talk more horror. Yeah. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow at Daily Horror Habit on Instagram and at Daily Horror Pod on Twitter.